kids, you are now dismissed for Fusion and Fusion Plus. If you're new and you'd like to walk with your kids over to see where they're going, feel free to do that. Lots of kiddos. Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson and I'm the lead pastor. We're going to continue our time this morning in the book of 1 Samuel. If you have a Bible, turn to chapter 19. If you didn't, you don't have a Bible, you'd like one, we have some in the back corner there. Feel free to take one. Uh, but it'd be helpful if you could turn there this morning. We're going to continue uh, our time in the cha- in chapter 19 this morning. And as we kind of kind of remind ourselves of where we are in 1 Samuel 19, a quick refresher, okay, to kind of catch us all back up to where we find ourselves today. Back in chapter 15, feels like a long time ago we did this. The message of 1 Samuel 15 was to Saul, God to Saul, saying he is not interested in Saul's worship, in his offerings, because he is actively enjoyably, unashamedly entertaining sin in his life. And so God comes to the king and says, you are wasting your time with your acts of worship because you have disobeyed me with the Amalekites and King Agag, that you have not, you have not followed me. And in chapter 15, it's kind of a, a dire, dark message to the king, but he says, the throne has been ripped from your family. You will no longer be king. You have been rejected as king. And so for the next several chapters, really for the rest of 1 Samuel, we see this this transition where the throne is taken from King Saul, and it it doesn't happen immediately. We think it's probably around 15 years from the moment that God tells Saul that you will no longer be king. 15 years until that comes to fruition, till that plane lands. But God's plan hasn't failed. Though there's that 15 years, and though there's, Saul is not going to be king, in chapter 16, we meet David. We meet the next king, and he is weak, and he is obscure, and he is unworthy. But God comes to him with Samuel, and he anoints him. And anoint, all anointing is was, was just a symbolic way of showing God's approval God's blessing and favor on an individual. It's a way of showing the empowerment of God for someone else to do some spiritual act. Usually the anointing was for the priests. Here for the first time in chapter 16, God anoints, spiritually empowers the next king to be who God made him to be, and that's David. But like I said, 15 years 15 years from this anointing till he actually sits on the throne. And what we see for the rest of 1 Samuel is this struggle of the 15 years, how God prepares and chisels and shapes David to be the king. And right from the get-go, right from the get-go after this anointing, chapter 17, there's a giant, and his name is Goliath. But David steps out as our champion. He steps to the line. He runs to the line. He doesn't cower away. He runs to the line. And as our champion and as our representative, mighty in strength, mighty in faith, he defeats the giant. The giant is slayed. And then again in the next chapter, the waiting is not met with a giant named Goliath. The waiting in in the next chapter 17 is met with a bloodthirsty king named Saul. 
This would have been chapter 18. This was last week. And we just see how Saul or, or David in his waiting is met with challenges. First it's Goliath, now it is Saul. But once again, David rides to the battlefield as our commander. That, that Saul was determined to kill David by putting him into these, these battles against the Philistines. But every time God shows up and fights for him and gives him victory, and so this is kind of where we've, where we've been, this is where we've been. This is what we've been seeing. And if you, as you kind of look ahead to where we're going in 1 Samuel, the rest of 1 Samuel, and if you're thinking, you know, you, you almost just anticipate David becoming king. Like, I mean, that, that's the logical next step. And it's just surprising to me. 1 Samuel, it, it doesn't do that. We're not... David's not going to be king by the time it's Christmas for us. Like, we've got a long ways to go. These 15 years, this is kind of depressing, but it's the 15 years we're going to see over and over and over again. David meets challenges. This is not quickly passed over in 1 Samuel. Though he is king, though he is anointed, he is rejected by men. And so this is the message. This is kind of the direction of where we're going to be going. David is anointed by God, but he is rejected by men. Being anointed and empowered for the service of God does not mean you will be accepted by those around you. And so as we've, another thing that we've been discussing in 1 Samuel is that we, we need to be very mindful about how we study the book of 1 Samuel, that we don't just place ourselves into the story of the text. We don't place ourselves in the hero's shoes. We don't, we don't automatically just assume that we are David in the text, but that we come to the text very careful about how we apply it. That we don't, there was one meme that I saw this week that kind of got me fired up. Uh, it said, VeggieTales shared this, believe it or not. Yeah, that's not good. Someone, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I like veggie tales. Sometimes God puts a Goliath in your life for you to find the David within you. Okay, don't do that to your pastor. Don't share these things. Like, we want to be careful about how we study and how we apply it. We don't just interject ourselves into the story and say, well, this, this, this is what it's about. That's what we would call, what the, theologians would call, bad Bible exposition. But instead, we want to come to the text and to the story and say, Okay, God, what are you teaching us? How, instead of just finding a pithy statement that works well for your life, the question we're asking, or we want to ask, is how does this story, how does this chapter, and how does this book fit in with the overall big picture, main thrust of the entire Bible? It's not necessarily that we're David or that we need friends like Jonathan. Not that those are bad things. But that in 1 Samuel, we get a picture or a shadow of what God's going to be doing in the future. That God restores and redeems and rescues mankind. And that that's the theme of this book. God rescues people from self deception and sin of envy and this destruction that was just coming upon them. And how does God redeem the people in 1 Samuel? He does it through a king. And so what we, what we want to do is to, to say, step back and say, how does this teach us 
about a bigger picture, a more clearer picture, a better David, a better king, the king of kings. And then what does this speak to us? And so as we see, and as we've been saying, there's a greater David, and his name was Jesus Christ. And so really, as we compare David and we look at Jesus these next several weeks, as we look at the the path for David, going from being anointed to sitting on the throne, he was rejected. And, and it was much of the same for Jesus, right? Except Jesus' crown wasn't gold, it was thorns. The, 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 the means by which, or the path through which Jesus found himself as king was through the cross. And so this morning, we look at the story but we put it in the whole context of what God is doing through Jesus, through his path, through the cross. And there's hope in this. We can find hope in this. There's meaning in this. And so this morning, that's what we want to see here in chapter 19. What is God teaching us about his son, and how can he encourage us as we walk out of this building today? And so I'll read the whole chapter of 19, and then I'll pray. As Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And when I I will speak to my father about you, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, And said to him, let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that he fled before them. Then a horrible spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, David was playing his lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul. So they struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair as its head, Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Nioth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. 
And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When he was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and he came to the great wall that is in Secu and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah, and he too, he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all, all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your text, and we pray that you would teach us Teach us about your son. Teach us about your providence. Teach us about our lives today. God, show us your truth. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Open our eyes, God, to see you more clearly that we would leave this place today beholding you, living changed lives for you. And we recognize, God, that we come into this room this morning, that we're at home watching online, that we have all sorts of things that could keep us from hearing your word today, that we're stressed and we're discouraged and we're tired or we're content, whatever, whatever it is, God, we pray that by your spirit and through the truth of your word, that you would speak to us, powerfully speak to us through your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We get to chapter 19. Uh, four scenes that we're going to see. It's pretty, I think, easy to kind of break down the chapter. There's four paragraphs, four sections, each illustrating the same point over and over again, though doing it in very different ways. The main point, God will protect the anointed king until it was his appointed time to take the crown. Okay, four stories, chapter 19, Four examples of how God will creatively, comically, ironically, supernaturally protect his king until it is his time to take the crown. And so that's what we want to see. First, God's protection, the first seven verses, is in Jonathan's intervention. Jonathan steps in. If you remember last week, okay, we focused on the two responses to David. You remember that? Goliath had just been slayed. David is brought before the king. And the question is, is how, how are you going to respond to this man? And we saw Jonathan's responses in the first, the first five verses. The rest of the chapter was, was all about Saul and how he was going to respond. Okay, and last week as we looked at Saul, if you remember what I said, he was spiraling downward. I mean, overcome with envy comparing, wanting this bloodthirsty rage. Remember how bad it got where he used his own, he used his own daughter, McCall, and his, her love for David. He used it to lure, to, to lure David to go to battle against the Philistines. And, we, and you're thinking, how much worse can it get? And then we get to chapter, or to this chapter, to verse one, and we see it's gonna get it's going to get worse. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. 
I mean, he didn't just speak it out like that in the last chapter. Now, all of a sudden, this is, it is so normal to Saul. It is such a, he has rehearsed this over and over to the point that he just, he just brings it up in conversation. He's not worried about veiling it anymore. He's not hiding his intentions like we saw in chapter 18. Now, I mean, he's, they're eating breakfast and it's, it's, let's just go kill him. It just comes out of his mouth as if it, this, is a, this is a plausible solution to my problem. This is the power of sin. This is, this is what sin has done to Saul. It is so overtaken him that it is just, it is his normal way of thinking. And so you think, well, I mean, I picture them at breakfast. They're probably not, but they're sitting at breakfast. And Jonathan's like, what are you going to do, Jonathan? I mean, you've got your dad, the king. You've got David, a man you love, who you know to be the next king. Like, how are you going to handle this moment where your dad, the king, tells you, let's go kill him. And, and, and if we wonder which direction Jonathan's going to go, the text doesn't give us long to wonder. The very next phrase in verse 1, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. He delighted more in David than he delighted in his dad, the king. And so he makes a choice. I will follow, I will follow the anointed king over my father. It's not too dissimilar from what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 when he says, do you think I've come to bring peace but not a sword to turn people against their fathers and their mothers and their families? He's not being crude or, or awful or mean. He's saying that Jesus's love must take priority above all else. All else, any relationship. Following Jesus is the number one. It is one above all others. And we see this in the Middle East. I remember when I went to Russia, we saw on a mission trip, we saw this. To, to declare Jesus as king was to essentially say no to your family. Was to say, I will no longer be in my family the way that I have known and enjoyed. And so this is what we see here. Jonathan saying, I will follow and serve and delight in David, even if it costs me everything that I love and know. So Jonathan makes a plan with David. You go hide. When I hear something, I will tell you. And so David is hiding, and then the scene kind of narrow, zooms in on this conversation between Jonathan and his dad Saul. And this is a, it's a brilliant conversation. If you know a lawyer, my, my older brother's a lawyer. I was talking to him this week. This is persuasive stuff here. He goes to his dad, and the, the tone of the conversation changes. All of a sudden, He's coming to him very respectfully. Did you notice that? No longer is he calling him dad or it's not first person. He is now long, he's now saying, let not the king. So he's coming to him kindly, respectfully over and over again. Let not the king, let not the king. He's appealing to his selfishness. He said, he's saying, David has actually brought you good and gain and fortune. He appeals to the fact that he's brought you victory, that you've, dad, you've, king, you've been able to stay at home and, and secure victory under your name while David has gone out to fight. And so he's persuading him that it is worthwhile to keep David around. And guess what? It works. It works. What, is, what does Saul say? He says, okay, we're not going to do this anymore. 
And it's kind of a weird, uh, uh, an interesting verse, verse 7. Things just go back to normal. I mean, that, that had to be strange for David to just come back to the house. And here's a man who was just about to kill you. And now, verse 7, he comes home and, and they're eating breakfast together now, I guess. But verse 8, Saul, now we see God's protection through David's illusion. We don't know how much time is between 7 and 8. But how quickly things change in the story. I, it's not surprising I mean, this is like deja vu. We've, we've done this. I've talked about this passage. I've talked about a passage like this in chapter 16. Verse 8, there was war. David goes and fights. David dominates. He wins. He comes home. The picture of Saul is just sulking in his house. He has his spear. David is playing his lyre. And it's like, we have done this before. This is, this is relapse. This is relapse, the day that, that Saul is controlled by this addiction to want to kill. And what's interesting about addiction is, you, is that we've now learned that when you're addicted to something, whatever it may be, drugs or money or games or gambling or social media or sex or really anything, what happens in your brain when you become addicted, even as adults, is that they describe it as a, as a well-worn hiking trail, like a well-worn hiking trail is created in your brain. It's a path, physically happens in your brain, connecting to some reward. And so it's not that simple to just stop some addictive behavior because there is a path in your brain, it's called a neural pathway, that takes you to this, to this destination. And so recovery for someone who's addicted is learning a new path, creating a new path, but it's, it's a very challenging process. And so in recovery, there are these things, in addiction recovery, there are these things called triggers, things that take you back to the path that you've kind of put some leaves over. You're saying, I don't want to go back down that path. I've covered it up. I'm creating a new path. Well, a trick, what a trigger is, it's like a it could be a restaurant, it could be a time of day, it could be a feeling, these things that bring you back to the path that takes you to addiction. And so th this feels like a trigger for Saul. I mean, he is in a situation, there is war, David wins, he's playing the music, and he has just said, I'm not going to go that way. But all of a sudden, he relapses into this complete madman self I'm going to go kill David. And so he snaps. He throws the spear at him. David eludes the spear. And once again, God protects the king. We see God's hand just guiding the situation very differently. He's protecting the king. Then we see God's protection in his daughter. First it was Jonathan. Then it was David's illusion. Now we see God's protection in McCall's illusion, not illusion, David's being able to evade the spear, but now it's McCall's illusion. And this, this is where it gets really good. This is really funny. Teenagers, are you listening? This it gets funny. My parents were here this weekend. They're watching online. I've got to be careful what I share here, but I, I see where my ideas came from as a young teenager. God is going to continue to protect him. And this, this scene, it reads like comedy, Okay. So we know he escapes, he evades the, the spear from Saul. He runs home to McCall's house. She has the wherewithal to know 
Listen, David, you have been followed. And if you stay here tonight, come morning, you will be killed. And so she says, we have to get you out of here. And so in verse 12 of chapter 19, she puts him in a basket. Another picture we have of the New Testament with Paul puts him in the basket, lowers him out the window, and off he goes. And, and at this point, as I was just thinking about this, I mean, I mean, what, who, who saw this coming for David? I mean, it's just not what you would expect for the anointed king. Just a few chapters ago, they're singing about him. They're celebrating him. He's defeated the giant. And now in the middle of the night, he's being lowered out of the window in a wicker basket by his wife. I mean, what, what a contrast to what you would expect. And then in verse 14 and 16, she does the great cover-up. She takes an icon, the text tells us. In Hebrew, the word is teraphim. And ter- the word teraphim is used elsewhere as a life-sized human idol. Sounds creepy. It is probably creepy. It's odd that she would even, ha- that McCall would have this, this large idol on hand, and so she, and she makes a mannequin. She stuffs the bed. Have you done that? You ever done that? I mean, this is where we get it. This is what she does. She gets her trusty pillow. She makes a head. She puts the covers and the clothing on. She puts it in bed, and she comes up with this whole story. He's sick in bed. Yeah, he's sick. He can't come out. He's sick. I don't want to get you infected. And so she, she comes up with this whole story, but Saul, how is Saul doing at this point? Saul, Saul has gone off the rocker. He's crazy. He's the dad that will not let go, okay? He, he, he is done. He, he says, bring the whole bed. Bring the bed. Like, pick up, like, I don't care. Take the bed. Take off the roof. Blast through a wall. Do whatever you have to do. I mean, this, this man is possessed. He will stop at nothing. Bring David to me. And then this father-daughter moment, verse 17, once they discover yeah, that's not, that's not David, actually. Um, it's, it's goat hair and a pillow. He, he asks his daughter, why have you deceived me? She says, verse 17, he said to me, David, let me go. Why should I kill you? And again, it's just interesting because that's not true. That's not, that's not what David said to her, at least not what the text tells us. And so here's what we have in this scene. God is using a basket and a window. He's using his wife and her craftiness and her deception and her lies, what seems like a lie. He's using all of these things. He's used, God is using her life-size idol, this crazy story to protect his chosen one, his anointed one to be king. To, to think that God isn't in control and he isn't working and guiding and leading the whole situation. I mean, here it is clear. God is, is using a, a spectacular scene to show I have it all in my hands. And then we get the fourth scene. God's protection in the Spirit's supremacy. You remember when I read this, these last 18 through 24, this, this is a bizarre scene. Have you, have you heard this story before? I mean, this is a weird scene. At first, I mean, you read, the, it's the prophets, they're prophesying. I mean, at first it feels like a charismatic church service and you don't know what's happening. Then all of a sudden Saul is taking off his clothes and you're like, this, this just got weird out here. Like this doesn't happen at Mount Calvary. Like we, we are orderly 
Okay, we care, like prophecy gets us a little uncomfortable, and, and, and we certainly don't do the other part, and this is what we see here. This is what we see here happening in chapter 19. But I love this story. I love this story. I've not spent a whole lot of time studying this story. I like it more than Goliath. Give me the crazy prophets. This is a great scene. Look at what happens. He comes out of the window. Okay, God protected him at McCall's house. Out the window on the basket, he runs to Rama. Okay, we know where this is. Archaeology has shown us this is just a few miles from where he would have been, just two miles northwest. So he runs to this, to this place in Rama. He meets up with Samuel. Now, you remember Samuel? I mean, this is a significant character in the book for Samuel. I mean, here's a man who was a prophet, who represents the word of God, the, the way of God. And so he meets up with Samuel, and they live in Naioth, we're told. Now, that's kind of a puzzling place. We're not sure exactly where or what that is. The most think that this is a little homestead or a, a village, part of Rama, where all the prophets, the school of prophets, would come to learn together. And so this is, this is where David runs to. He, in the middle of the night, he takes the two miles, and he goes to be with these prophets and Samuel. Well, what happens? Just like it's been happening, Saul gets wind of this. Right? He, he, get, he hears exactly where David is, and he knows where it is. It's, it's so close to where Saul would have been. And so he takes his minions. They take the little hike to Ramah. They go to Nioth. I mean, they are there to hunt him down. Let's finish the guy. And so they get to Ramah. They get to Nioth. And what, what happens? He sends his troops ahead of them, and they are completely neutralized. Look at what happens in verse 20. It says, Saul sent his messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. I mean, what is this? I mean, what is happening here? I think the key for us as we kind of try to capture what's happening is, is to know what is, what is it that they were doing. What is the prophesying? Because this is a very important word in 1 Samuel. It's used to describe all sorts of activities. But I think it's best if we look at this, this company of prophets in comparison to the group of prophets back in 1 Samuel 10. So you with me? Way back in 1 Samuel 10, uh, Saul was going down to Gibeah Elohim to do what God has called him to do. And he, he bumps into, it's, the text tells us, a group of prophets with instruments that were prophesying and speaking God's word. And I think, I think it is logical, I think it's appropriate to connect this group of prophets with this company of prophets here in chapter 19. So I don't think, so if they had instruments like the other prophets did, what, what would that be that they're doing? They are worshiping. What do we know about prophets? That the role of the prophet was God speaks to you, objectively, clearly speaks to you, and then you speak his word to others. You combine that with the musical instruments. What is this? This is worship. This is singing the truth of God. God speaking to them and them worshiping with the truth and the word of God. And so now we kind of take 
what I think to be the best understanding of what these, these men and women are doing. What, what's happening here? These soldiers come to Nioth in Ramah. I mean, these are antagonists. They are resisting God. They are against God. They are for Saul. They are against David. And what happens? The whole scene changes. No longer can they come to arrest and capture David because the word of God and the worship of God has completely arrested them because they join in. They can't help but join in. Now, I've been asking you over the last, I don't know, forever, to go see Sight and Sounds David. Hopefully, you've done that. I don't ask a lot from you, so hopefully you've seen it. There's still time. But believe it or not, this scene is in the show, and it is a fantastic scene because we, we are sitting there watching this. Ashley and I, we saw it twice. Yeah, we're, yeah, that's us. We're watching it, and you're like, what is going on here? I mean, it is just like I've described it. There's singing and dancing and clothes are flying, and you're like, what is this? Where is this in the Bible? Well, it's right here in 1 Samuel 19, and I think the way they captured it in sight and sound, I think it's accurate. They're worshiping God with, with instruments. And the song that they're singing in the show is based from Psalm 150. So we're running out of time, but let me read you Psalm 150. Now, I don't know that this is what they were prophesying in Ramah at Nioth, but based on what, what I think they were doing, this kind of psalm would fit with what I think they were doing. He says in Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I mean, they are dancing in the, in the scene at Sight and Town. They are, they are celebrating and worshiping. And here you have these troops that kind of walk into this. And they're not thinking about praising God, but all of a sudden they are overwhelmed with the presence and the praise of God that they have no choice but to join them in worshiping him. And it is a powerful scene. At the very end of the scene, as you kind of see Saul, he's wrestling with this, right? That he's coming to kill. He is raging. And all, I mean, he starts to sing. In the very end of the song, of the scene, he screams out, praise the Lord. And he falls on his face. And the whole stripping down part, I mean, it makes sense. He's, he is sweating and trembling. He's humiliated. He's overwhelmed with the greatness of who God is. He is convicted to his core. I mean, he is just humbly prostrate before God. I mean, that's, that's the picture. And as I was thinking about this scene, it took me back to, to Jesus. I mean, this, ha this same type of scene happened to Jesus as he approached his throne through the cross. So if you remember on Thursday night, the Thursday night of his crucifixion week, okay, Jesus decided with his disciples that they were going to leave the upper room and go pray at a place they've always prayed, down at the foot of Mount of Olives in the garden. And this is where they've always prayed. And Jesus knows, I, I'm about to be crucified. 
So I'm going to spend my night in prayer. And so he goes to this garden and his disciples come. But the only problem was Judas knew this is where they prayed. Judas knew the plan was for Jesus to pray with his disciples in this garden. And so, so Judas meets Jesus with his band of soldiers while Jesus was praying. And here's what the, the, the scene says. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, they went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, stand, who was standing with them, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, what a picture this is. I mean, the weapons and the lanterns. I mean, the the text goes into these details about all these things that they have. I mean, they are ready to slay Jesus. And what happens? Jesus reveals himself as the self-existent, almighty, holy God of the universe. I am, he says, I am. And what what do they do? They have no option here. It wasn't in their heart or their intent. They, They have no option but to physically fall on their faces before the revealing of the great God of the universe. And isn't isn't this what happens? Isn't this what happens with with Saul coming to get David? They come to arrest him, but they come face to face with the Almighty God. They are overwhelmed by the presence of God that they cannot help but fall on their face and let the Word of God arrest them, speak to them, show them the truth. He does it all day and all night. That's what the text, all day, all night, Saul is on the ground. They even think he's a prophet. Is Is he now a prophet? I mean, he's He's been here a long time. He sounds like a prophet. He's saying what they say. And and really, as we wrap up, this is beautiful, and it is also tragic. It is is beautiful that all of us will come before God, and and we have no option when, when when we see him as he is, but to bow down before him. But it is tragic. The band of soldiers in John 18, what do they do next? They get up. They shake it off. They get their lanterns, they get their weapons, and they, they, they capture Jesus. And they take him, and they beat him, and they strip him down, and they lash him, and they crucify him. Even after they understood, or at least saw who he really was, physically falling down, they continued with his crucifixion. And here's the, the tragic part in our, our story this morning. Saul gets up. He gets dressed, and he shakes it off, and he leaves, and he continues on his mission. His rage keeps raging. He is after David, and he knows he knows now who God is, but he doesn't care, and he doesn't want to. And so for us, as we wrap up this morning, and we certainly see God's guiding providential hand, that yes, David was on the run, but he was not running from God. He was running right along the, the foreordained, perfect plan of God. But the question for you is, and for me, is how do we respond to the king? It's the same as last week. 
It is tragic to see Saul. But, but our hope, my hope and my prayer is that as we look upon the throne and we see Jesus, that we would be overwhelmed at what we see. Almighty, eternal, full of love and compassion and justice. He, when we, when we worship, that we would see the king of all kings, that, that we would be overcome with it, knowing he's not just the king of kings, a king who sits on his throne, but he is a king that went to the cross. And that when we would worship, it, I don't care if we've sung it or heard it or talked about it, a million times that we would be overwhelmed with the truth of who he is and that we would just stop fighting and resisting and clinging like Saul just keeps on clinging to his sin, his envy and his power hunger. I want to be king. My family is going to be king. And he resists. And listen, his resisting, his rejecting is his downfall. And it just leads to complete misery. And so my prayer, that as we close, we just a few songs and communion, that, that we would be overwhelmed with the presence of God. That he was, he was perfectly leading and protecting his king here in 1 Samuel. And he does it in the New Testament with Jesus. And he was being perfectly led to the cross for our forgiveness. And so let's pray as we prepare to worship. Father, help us open our eyes. Open our eyes to see you, to really see you, to behold you. May we stop resisting and running and avoiding and replacing. May we stop that and may we... Come before you and see you like Saul would have seen you in this chapter for who you are. And I pray that we'd be so overwhelmed with your grace and your goodness and who you are for us as the King of kings and Jesus, the King on the cross, God, that it would transform us, transform us, that we would leave this room transformed. It would change how we do everything that we do because we've understood the great grace that you show us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.